Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for leading us by the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, as the Holy Spirit teaches us your word. And Lord, I pray that you would now give us open hearts to receive this word of exhortation from the author of Hebrews. I pray, Lord, that you would cause our minds to be attentive, that we might grasp what he is communicating and what you mean to say to us. And Lord, I pray that you give us responsive hearts, hearts that are eager to embrace your grace communicated in these words, hearts that are eager to live out the glorious new covenant that you have made through the Lord Jesus. We pray this for the name of Christ, that his glory might be seen in our congregation, in, especially in the relationships between the pastors and the members. We pray, Lord, that people would indeed know that we are Christians by the way that we love one another. And we pray that it would have an evangelistic appeal and that it would resound to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I'd invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 13, and we will be looking together at the last section of the letter, which is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 through 25. <clears throat> God providentially ordained through my illness that we would finish the book of Hebrews on the final day of 2023, so this is a fitting text for a fitting day. As we approach this passage this morning, I would invite you to think about the way that Moses and the people of Israel related to one another after the exodus from Egypt. They experience this remarkable deliverance where the Lord liberates them from slavery. They come through the waters of the Red Sea only to get out into the wilderness and the people immediately begin to grumble against Moses. Why have you brought us out here to kill us. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we have to come out here and die? And on and on it goes, all the way through the wilderness. Even, even at the end of his life, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is saying to the people of Israel, I know how rebellious you have been all through my leadership of you, and I know that after my death, you were going to go right on rebelling. I think that antagonistic relationship between the congregation of Israel and the leaders, particularly Moses, is a fitting backdrop for this passage. And as we consider the, the book of Hebrews, I, I think it's likely that in what the author writes here in these closing statements, we get a little, a little glimpse into probably some tension between the members of the congregation and the leadership. And I suspect, given the content of the letter, given the, the, the kinds of things that this author has addressed throughout the letter, I suspect that some of that tension likely arose precisely because of the appeal of going back to Judaism. So here's, here's what I'm suggesting. I think that probably the leadership, leadership of this particular church, probably a church in Rome, if, if you see there in verse uh, 24, 
Near the end, it says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. So he's probably writing back to a church, perhaps in Rome, somewhere in Italy, and he's sending them greetings uh, from those who have come out from Italy, from wherever he is. And, and I suspect that the leadership of that church, they were solid on the gospel. They were solid on the new covenant. And then as they began to see people tempted to, to hide under the umbrella of Judaism to avoid persecution, to avoid social ostracism, to avoid having their houses plundered or themselves put in jail or being mistreated or whatever, whatever form it took, they began to appeal to these people. Don't abandon the gospel. Don't go back to Judaism. And I suspect that at some level there was resentment and, 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 and there was difficulty and there was tension. And so now this, this author uh, has written this magnificent letter and it seems to me that in these closing greetings, what he, what he does is he identifies with the leaders and, and he appeals to the church to be persuaded by their leaders and, and to, to embrace the teaching of the leaders. And this is a, this is a fitting word because um, all churches are going to face potential tensions like this. And, and all Christians are going to need to hear this kind of admonition. And, and this is such a beautifully uh, constructed and, and perfectly worded end of this glorious letter that we have been studying, uh, this letter to the Hebrews. So we need this word. And, and here's what I would propose is, is the main point of Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 25. This is kind of a long statement that I'm about to make. Uh, but bear with me, and as we walk through the passage, uh, I think you'll see how this develops. The relationship between the church and the leadership is theologically grounded. So just to sort of preview what we're going to see in verses 20 and 21, there's going to be this new covenant benediction where he celebrates what Christ has done in bringing about the eternal covenant that God has promised in the Old Testament, and the relationship between the church and the leadership is ultimately grounded in what Christ has done. The relationship between church and leadership is theologically grounded, motivated by the second coming and the last judgment. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Maintained by prayer and the word. And because of the way that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant, it doesn't have to be like Moses and Israel, but can be harmonious and affectionate. I'm going to read that whole thing again, and then we'll walk through the passage together, okay? The relationship between the church and its leadership is theologically grounded, motivated by the second coming and the last judgment, maintained by prayer and the word, and because of the way that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant, does not have to be like the relationship between Moses and Israel, but can be harmonious and affectionate. Uh, in this context of Hebrews chapter 13, we have seen how the author, having really celebrated the way that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant. He comes to chapter 13, and in verses 1 through 8, it's like he lays out a set of new covenant commands. This is how you live in the new covenant. And then in verses 9 through 16, he outlines new covenant worship, speaking of the sacrifice that Christ has made and the altar that we have to eat from, I think speaking of the Lord's Supper and so forth. And now in verses 17 through 25, I think what he's mainly addressing here is the new covenant relationship between the congregation and the leadership. So look with me at verse 17. 
The author writes here, Obey your leaders, the ESV renders it, and submit to them. That first word there, obey, uh, literally the Greek term could be translated, be persuaded by your leaders and submit to them. Be persuaded by your leaders. I think what he's saying to them essentially comes down to something like this. Your leaders have been appealing to you not to go back to the old covenant. Your leaders have been appealing to you how see, to see how everything in the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Be persuaded by them. And, and it's as though he's joined in the work all through this letter of making that case. Be persuaded by your leaders and submit to them. There, there's there's a, a, a cognitive element of this. Be persuaded. And then there's a volitional element of it. And submit. And, and there's, a, there's a relationship here between being open to teaching and then being willing to be led. And now he's going to explain why they need to relate this way. He says in verse 17 there, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is where that, that second coming and last judgment overtone comes in because the language that's translated when it says here, they are keeping watch, this is the exact terminology that the Lord Jesus used in the Olivet Discourse as he told people to be on guard because they didn't know when the Lord would come. But they were to be watchful, Mark 13, 33, and Luke 21, 36. So the, the, the author of Hebrews, he picks up this language that the Lord Jesus used to urge people to be on guard for the second coming, and he essentially says to the audience, your, your leaders, and notice I would add here that it's not a singular, you know, it's not obey your leader and submit to him, it's obey your leaders, there's a, I think there's probably a plurality of elders in the church that he's addressing, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And I think that this points to the primary responsibility that pastors have, and that is to ensure the purity of the gospel and the readiness of the congregation to stand before the Lord. He goes on there, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That giving an account should call to mind Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, where uh, the author says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is talking, I think, about the last judgment. And, and, and I think what, what the author is communicating, communicating is the leadership of the church has the responsibility to ensure that the members of the church truly believe the gospel and are ready to stand before God on the last day. And if you abandon the cross, and if you think you need to go back to old covenant sacrifices, or if you think you need to obey laws stipulated for the old covenant, you don't have a clear and true understanding of the way that the gospel has brought all that to fulfillment and all the requirements are satisfied in Christ and you are now freed to live as the author has outlined, for instance, in Hebrews 13, 1 through 8. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
going back to my statement, the main point of this text, the relationship between the church and the leadership is theologically grounded. It's grounded in the gospel. And it's motivated by the second coming and the last judgment. So there's a, there's a purpose here that, that we as your pastors, we are to have our minds fixed on the coming of the Lord. And then we are to be looking at the congregation and trying to make sure that the people who are here, the people who are members of this congregation, have a clear and true understanding of the gospel, and you're living in accord with the teaching of the gospel, and you're ready to stand before God. You're ready to stand before God with a clear conscience. So in, in application of, the, of this, the first part of this first verse here, let me just urge you to be persuaded by your pastors. Be ready to receive instruction. Be teachable. Chip Stam used to say, a mature Christian is easily edified. A mature Christian is easily edified. If, if your heart is fixed on the Lord, if your heart is fixed on the throne of judgment, th there could be all kinds of things that you got qualms or quibbles about, but if somebody's teaching the scriptures, what you want is the scriptures. What you want is the Bible. What you want is the truth. I would encourage you, if you don't, to take notes on Sunday school classes and sermons. And you can take notes for yourself, and you can take notes for others. If, if you're the head of a household, uh, I think it's a great idea for you to take notes so that you can lead a converse, conversation with the members of your household about the sermon that you've heard. And, and if, if you do that, it'll be easy for you to ask specific questions about what was taught. Be teachable. Be receptive. Uh, the last words of verse 17 there, let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You can imagine a scenario, can't you, where every time there's an interaction between, let's say, a particular leader and a member of the congregation, there's, there's a challenge. Why'd you do it that way? I don't like the way you do this. Why do you never do it this way? I think your whole philosophy is wrong. It's always adversarial. And you can imagine in the heart of the leader what would develop. Oh, no. There they are again. Here they come again. I'm trying to watch over this person's soul. I'm trying to get this person ready for the second coming. And all they want to do is challenge me. Lord, help me. Give me grace. Give me patience. Give me joy. Lord, I don't think I can do anything right in this person's eyes. Help me. I don't know what to do here. We don't want that kind of relationship. None of us do. We want joy. Let them do this with joy. And I think that this goes to the volitional aspect of it. Because there are, there are always going to be things that you can quibble with. There are always going to be things that you can nitpick. There are always going to be things that you can find that are wrong. And I would just encourage you to choose to be happy. Choose to be grateful. Choose to focus on the positives. Choose to be easily edified. The relationship between the church and the leadership is theologically grounded, motivated by the second coming and the last judgment, maintained by prayer. Look at verse 18. Pray for 
us. Here, I think the author is including himself with the leadership. Be persuaded by your leaders, verse 17. Pray for us. I think it, it's like he's identifying with that leadership that's urging this church not to go back to Judaism, but to embrace the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the gospel. And then when he says pray for us, I think this is just a, this a, a brilliant and glorious reality about praying for somebody. It's hard to be in an adversarial relationship for somebody that you're praying with, praying for. If you're praying for somebody, it's, it's hard to then go and, and attack or challenge them. If you're praying for somebody, you're motivated to want their good and to seek their good. And I, I think that's in part why the author gives this, this command, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Um, if, if, again, you think about the use of this term conscience through the book of Hebrews, you see the, the gospel foundation of a clear conscience. He, he's not just saying, my conscience is clear in the sense that I haven't wronged anybody in the congregation, something like that. I think he's saying, I have a clear conscience because I'm fully believing the gospel, and I'm, I'm resting in what Christ has accomplished in the gospel. So Hebrews 9.9. 9. The gifts and sacrifices of the Old Covenant cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? So I think this statement about a clear conscience here is another sounding of the gospel note. Once again, he's saying the gospel brings about a clear conscience. And we are sure that we have a clear conscience. We know that we're believing the, the gospel. We're, we know that we're believing the fulfillment of the old covenant. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And, and I think this acting in honorably in all things, again, pertains to acting in accordance with the new covenant. Living out the, the, the free, freedom from the law, Freedom from the food requirements, the calendrical cycles, and, and, and everything that was commanded for Old Covenant Israel, all the sacrificial rituals, freedom from all of that, and then freedom to, to pursue Christ-likeness, freedom to, to, to follow the commands that, that we read in Hebrews 13, 1 through 8. Desiring to act honorably in all things, living out the gospel and then verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is, this is really interesting because, as, as you know, there's, there's no name at the beginning of the, the letter to the Hebrews like there are in Paul's letters, right? Paul's letters begin Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and so forth. Uh, James starts the same way, James, and so forth. Uh, Jude starts the same way. There's no name on Hebrews, but apparently this church knows this author, and apparently he's been with, with them, and they know exactly who he is, and, and apparently they know his circumstances. Uh, perhaps he has been detained in some way by the government, and he's now asking for prayer that he might be restored to the church. So, again, the relationship between the church and the leadership is theologically grounded, 
motivated by the second coming and the last judgment, maintained here by prayer. We'll, we'll see the word in just a moment. And because of the way that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant, it doesn't have to be like the relationship between Moses and Israel, but can be harmonious and effective. This brings us to this magnificent benediction here in verses 20 and 21. And th this, these two verses are, are so carefully put together, carefully composed, that they really summarize the whole content of the letter and speak directly into the situation that it seems the author is addressing. So he begins, Now may the God of peace... And, and I think the, the relevance of that word peace there has to do with this the potential tension that, that could have existed between the congregation and, and the leadership. Now may the God of peace. And then as he, as he starts into the celebration of what God has done in Christ, so many of these statements are going to, to, to resonate with notes that he sounded throughout the letter. So he says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So that's the resurrection of the dead. God resurrected Christ from the dead. And the death of Christ had brought an end to the old covenant, as the author argued in Hebrews 9, 15 through 23. And then the resurrection of Christ brings about the inauguration of the new covenant. And the language that the author uses here. Uh, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, is language that it's not exactly the same, but it's very close to Isaiah chapter 63, 11. So the, the language of what God has done in Christ is going to resonate with a description in Isaiah 63 of what God did for Israel through Moses. And so again, it's as though uh, everything that was typified by Moses and others in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Christ. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, really our Lord Jesus is pushed to the end of this statement. So the shepherd of, the, the great shepherd of the sheep, um, it, it's interesting that in this passage, really all through this passage, he's referred to the leaders of the church, right? Verse 17, obey your leaders. Um, verse 24, greet all your leaders. And back up in verse 7, remember your leaders. He never calls them pastors or shepherds. He never calls them elders or overseers. He refers to them as leaders. And, and I think that perhaps the reason is because he's re reserving this term shepherd for the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And, and the leaders of the church are under shepherds under him. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Our call to worship this morning was Isaiah 55, 3, which included the Lord saying that he would make an everlasting covenant. And then he refers to the steadfast and sure mercies of David. So the everlasting covenant in Isaiah 55, 3 is the promise of 
the, the new covenant that will be brought about by the future king from David's line. We saw something very similar in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, which was our old covenant, Old Testament reading this morning. There, there too, there's a reference to the everlasting covenant. So the, the Old Testament has these, these pointers forward to a day when God is going to make an everlasting covenant. And I would invite you to, if you don't have to turn there, but I, if you'd like, you could turn to Zechariah. And I want to read to you Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. The first part of this is going to be very familiar. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, this is the triumphal entry passage, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you know the gospel accounts, how the Lord Jesus, he found a donkey and he deliberately enacted the fulfillment of this when he entered Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. The next verse, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. All those statements point to the end of conflict the end of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There, there'll be no more war. You can beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. The next words of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, quote Psalm 72, verse 8. So this is remarkable. I think that David prayed Psalm 72 for Solomon as Solomon ascended the throne, and, and that was like 1,000 B.C., and now here's Zechariah in around 520 B.C. quoting a prayer that David prayed for Solomon about the future king, saying here in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now that reference, the, 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 the way that this is worded is, is almost directly quoted in, the, in this statement that we're looking at here in Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, this, this because of the blood of my covenant here in Zechariah 9, 11, is likely the source text for the author of Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews is telling us Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.11, is not talking about the blood of the old covenant, but the blood of the new covenant. And, and then that statement there in Zechariah 9.11, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The waterless pit likely symbolizes uh, the grave, resurrection from the dead. Um, so, so the author of Hebrews is claiming fulfillment of these these old covenant realities, these old covenant prophecies, and he's also summarizing the argument that he's made to this point throughout the letter. God, the God of peace has brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. And we can think of how all through Hebrews 9 and 10, the author has talked about how God has brought about the new covenant, brought an end to the old covenant, brought about the new covenant. You can think of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 17, where the Lord Jesus has liberated from the, those who 
We're held captive to the fear of death by defeating the devil. So, Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. This is what the Lord Jesus says. Hebrews 10, 7. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And then drop your eyes down to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So the Lord Jesus came And in the course of his earthly life, he did God's will. And it's as though the author of Hebrews is saying, believers in Jesus need to do the same thing the Lord Jesus did. And that is, do the will of God. And then once you've done the will of God, you receive what is promised. And here he's praying, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, and then look at how it comes about there in verse 21. It's the Lord working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The Lord is the one who works in us so that we do what is pleasing in his sight. Uh, This reference to what is pleasing in his sight should recall to mind chapter 10, verse 16. I'm sorry, 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And also chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. That's the same kind of language. With reverence and awe. And then we also have this language in 11, 5, and 6. By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the author is praying that God would work in the audience so that they have everything good, so that they are fully equipped to do what is pleasing in God's sight. And, and I think that this, it all boils down to Christ-likeness. It all boils down to laying your life down for others the way that Christ has laid his life down for us. He says next year, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So I, I think the idea is that God the Father is working in us what is pleasing through Christ, through the Lord Jesus. And he does this as we consciously do what the author commands us to do in in Hebrews chapter 12. Here again, he's he's summarizing the letter, 12.3. Consider him who endures from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then all through that passage, he urges his audience to see that God is disciplining us as sons in the same way that the Lord Jesus was perfected through suffering. So we're getting both 
a summary of the theological content of the letter and a summary of the exhortational content of the letter. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And then I think this to whom be glory forever and ever, I think the whom here is the God of peace. So God is working what is pleasing in his sight through Christ, and then this is going to result in glory to God the Father forever and ever. The relationship between the church and the leadership is theologically grounded, motivated by the second coming and the last judgment, maintained by prayer and the word of God. Look at the next words here in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. And and I think what the author has done here is he has framed the benediction in verses 20 and 21 with these sort of parallel commands. The first one in verse 18 is pray for us. And the second one in verse 22 is bear with the word of exhortation. So prayer and the word bracket the benediction in verses 20 and 21. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. I wonder if this calls to mind for you 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. The, the Apostle Paul writes there, the time is coming when people, we could translate this, when people will not bear sound teaching. The ESV renders it, will not endure, but it's the same terminology, same Greek language behind this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And the author of Hebrews is essentially saying, don't be like that. Bear with my word of exhortation. Uh, This is is really a, a, a fascinating passage because this, this uh, phrase, word of exhortation, it's the exact same phrase that we find in Acts chapter 13, verse 15, when Paul and, and some others have come into a synagogue, and they've read the scriptures according to the synagogue, and then they send a message to the apostle Paul, and they say, if you have a word of exhortation, we'll hear it. Basically, they're saying to Paul, if you have a sermon to preach, in response to the word that's just been read, we'd like to have you preach. And and now the author of Hebrews has written this letter, and he describes the letter as a word of exhortation, which I think is tantamount to basically calling the letter a sermon. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my sermon, my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Uh, It's 13 chapters, and um, last week when I was sick, um, I, I got out my phone and I started the timer, and I started David Cochran Heath reading Hebrews 1.1 in my ESV Bible app. And it took him just over 42 minutes. And he reads deliberately. He reads slowly. He, he's not rushing. But the point is, if, if you just read aloud straight through the book of Hebrews, you can finish it in a little under 43 minutes. So um, apparently that was considered a brief sermon in the ancient world. I have written to you briefly. It, it's interesting. There's a... There's an early Christian writing, writing called uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. We don't know if Barnabas actually wrote it or not. But it's twice as long as Hebrews. And he says the same thing about his letter, that he has written briefly. So 
I guess it's relative. I appeal to you, brothers, endure my word of exhortation. Receive the teaching, he's saying. I think this is almost a reiteration of verse 17. Be persuaded by your leaders. Receive the message that I've communicated to you. I've written to you briefly. And then, in the same way that he spoke of himself, wanting to be restored to them, back in verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Look at what he says in verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So he wants to be restored soon. And now he's speaking of Timothy who, if he comes soon, he will see uh, Timothy and he will come together. Now the, the bringing in of Timothy accomplishes something that I think is really significant for the author at this point. Because what it does is it says, it's as though the author is saying, look, I'm aligned with your pastors, and we are all appealing to you to embrace this message. And Timothy, our brother, Paul's companion, we're going to come together. You see what he's doing? It's, just like, it's as though he's, he's broadening out the horizon of who it is that embraces the true gospel of the fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ. And he's saying, this is what the apostle Paul believes. This is what all Paul's co-workers believe. And, and, and Timothy, he's with us. He's with your pastors. And, and, and we're going to come soon. So be persuaded by your leaders and submit to them. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. And then verse 24. Greet all your leaders. I, I looked up this word greet in the standard Greek lexicon, and I, I liked the definition so much that I wrote it down, and I'm going to read it to you. Engage in hospitable recognition of one another. Engage in hospitable recognition of one another. You know, we, we all have a certain amount of social sense, and we can all pick up on when somebody's not too thrilled to see us, can't we? We can tell when somebody's happy to see us and when somebody's kind of holding back a little bit. And, and identifying with the leaders, engaging in hospitable recognition of one another, this is also, it's not just going to be about interpersonal relationships between the members of the church and the leaders. It's also going to communicate something to those outside. Are those people aligned with Christians? Or are they kind of holding themselves aloof from those people that aren't to be identified with Judaism and aren't under its protection. So I think even this statement here, greet all your leaders and all the saints, that's a theological statement. It's like he's saying, Christians are your people. Christians are your people, and that's who you engage in hospitable recognition of one another with. That's who you, you warmly embrace Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Um, point of application here on this uh, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Um, you, you may have heard that MT1, our beloved uh, brother, is uh, sick and in the hospital. 
and um, he, he doesn't want visitors, but I think a great way to greet him would be to write him a letter of encouragement. Maybe if you, if you feel prompted to do that this week, um, to, to take out a card and, and um, write down a verse of scripture and telling him, tell him that you're praying for him and that you love him and miss him. And, and I think if he were to be inundated with, with um, notes of encouragement like this, he would definitely feel greeted. He would definitely feel hospitably recognized. And uh, more broadly, I would just uh, say again, the relationship between the church and the leadership is theologically grounded, motivated by the second coming and the last judgment, maintained by prayer and the word of God, and because of the way that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant, it doesn't have to be like Moses and Israel, but can be harmonious and affectionate, sealed again theologically in verse 25. Grace be with all of you. This is not just a sort of sentimental, you know, wishful uh, statement, grace be with all of you. Uh, the reference to grace here is, is going to recall Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, where the author says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And again, in this letter, he has spoken in 2.9 of how the Lord Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone, which makes it so that we, in, in Hebrews 4.16, can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And then with reference to one another, Hebrews 12.15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of of God. So this word grace, grace be with all of you, is really a profound theological reality that communicates the glorious truths of the gospel. That because of Christ's death, we can approach the throne of grace. And, and I think when he says grace be with all of you, it's as though he's saying, meditate on these things. Bear these things in mind. Keep the grace of the gospel and, and the, the fragrance of the Holy Spirit about you in all your relationships, in all your deeds. Just by way of summary of the passage, let me draw your attention to the way that in verse 17 he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Then verse 24, greet all your leaders. And then in verse 18 he's got that command, pray for us. And then in verse 22, this appeal to bear with the word of exhortation. In verse 19, he speaks of how he wants to be restored to them the sooner. And then in verse 23, how if, if Timothy is released soon, um, he'll see them. And it all frames that glorious doxology benediction in verses 20 and 21, which summarizes everything that God has done for us in Christ. This eternal covenant will never come to an end. God in Christ has brought about an enduring, ongoing covenantal relationship, this new covenant between Christ and the bride, the church. The church is in covenant with God because of what Christ has done and will remain so until the coming one comes and he will not delay and we will receive the kingdom. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray that our relationships here at Kenwood would be theologically grounded, motivated by the second coming and the last judgment, maintained by prayer. Lord, help us to be people who pray for one another, people who intercede with you on behalf of one another. Maintained by prayer and the word of God. Lord, make us people, all of us, whose hearts are open to the teaching of the scriptures. People who are eager to learn what the scriptures say. Willing to listen. Receptive. Able to be persuaded. And Lord, because of the way that Christ has inaugurated the new covenant, make it so that we don't have adversarial relationships like the ones with which Moses and Israel afflicted. Make it rather harmonious and affectionate for your glory in Christ. Amen.